Amen. Great worship. Good morning. Whew. We're in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Three more chapters left. And you know, I planned it. I might as well go on and tell you guys. I can't hold water, so. I planned it. I thought I had planned it very well that before I leave to go out of town, I would do the 15th chapter. I've been waiting. I've been waiting for two or three chapters in the book of 1 Corinthians. I was waiting for the 13th chapter, and I did that one. But man, I sure wanted to do the 15th chapter. So I have one more Sunday, Pastor Jonathan. And I, I said, okay, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll do half of the 15th chapter and leave the rest for you. <laughs> but we are, like I said, in the book of 1 Corinthians, the 14th chapter. Did anyone go to Sam's or Costco this previous week? Okay, did you hear anybody speaking in tongues or anything? Because we talked about that. I'm glad you went. You didn't notice that, so that's a good thing. Uh, did anyone check out Acts 2? Even though I did not say go look at Acts 2 or Acts 10 or Acts 19, it was in the message, those with inquiring minds would have went and checked it out. Because in those three chapters, the, the only places in the scripture that people are speaking in unknown tongues, every time they spoke, there was always someone there to interpret. And that's, that's there for a reason. We talked about tongues and some of the unfortunate misuse of them and how there are many incoherent languages. So let's make sure we are connected to the true and living God. The, the Corinthian church, by the way, they were abusing these gifts. And Paul is going to try to um, bring them back in order in this 14th chapter because we know God is a God of order. So we left off in verse 20 of chapter 14, the book of 1 Corinthians. It says this, brethren, do not be children in understanding. However, in malice, be babes, but in understanding, be mature. Paul had hinted at the same thing when he said in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 1 through 2, and I, brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual people because the church of Corinth thought they were all spiritual. They were head and shoulders above the rest. But Paul says, I couldn't speak to you guys as spiritual, but as carnal, as to babes in Christ. I fed you with milk and not with solid food, for until now you were not able to receive it, and even now you are still not able. Paul wants them to cease being like children in their thinking and that they be innocents, innocent as infants in their behavior. If we could work that out, boy, we wouldn't have much problems. You know, it's strange, we just dedicated Leah, that an infant never thinks that another human being would harm them would hold any malice towards them or ill will to hurt them. So we know that's a learned behavior. And the Holy Spirit is telling us that we should have that mindset with people. 
I'll give you an example. Matthew 6, 26, Jesus has just fed the multitude, and he says, he, he, he tells his disciples, look at the birds of the air, for they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns. They're not worried about tomorrow. Hint, hint. In other words, they're not doing, the, the birds, they're not even doing the things to help them uh, with tomorrow, uh, p- getting, picking up food or whatever and bringing it to their barns. But Jesus says, yet your heavenly father feeds them. And then he says, are you not more value than they? That's a good question. I'm reminded of Mark chapter 4, verses 37 through 38. Jesus has fed the multitudes. He sends the the boys on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. He, knowing what would happen, says, And a great windstorm arose, and the waves beat in the boat, so that it was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on a pillow. And they awoke him and said to him, Teacher, Do you not care that we are perishing? In other words, you heard the doctor's report, and it wasn't good. You know, and we know the economic situation. We may have children that are not saved yet. And just think of the anxiety that that could hold. And Jesus is saying, No need to be anxious about anything if you're with me, if you're on my team, if you've been born again. Anxiety, we had a study on that, and that definition is distress or uneasiness of mind caused by fear or danger or misfortune. David, he knew what to do. He would take all of his problems, if he got anxious, he would take them all to the Lord. In Psalms 3, verses 1 through 8, it says, David says, And his own son Absalom was in rebellion against him. That would make you anxious. David, being anxious, says this, Lord, how they have increased who trouble me. Many are they who rise up against me. Many are they who say of me, there's no help for him in God. And then that word Selah, pause, think about what the fool has just said. Those are my words, what the fool has just said. But in this statement, let me be clear. He could say that. Look what they're saying, that there's no help even from God Almighty. But you, O Lord, are a shield for me, my glory and the one who lifts up my head. David says, I cried to the Lord with my voice, and he heard me like he always does from his holy hill, Selah. So when we pray and when we cry out for God, we don't have to worry about him not hearing us. After David does that, he says, I lay down and slept. I awoke, for the Lord sustained me. After he comes right from that, he says, I will not be afraid of 10,000 of people who have set themselves against me round about. 
That's after he has communed and prayed to his Lord. He now has the right perspective in the matter. He says in verse 7, Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you have struck all my enemies on the cheekbone. You have broken the teeth of the ungodly. Salvation belongs to Yahweh. Your blessings is upon your people. And then he says it again, Selah. Think about that. Remember when we were going through chapter 13, speaking of agape love? Well, one of the characteristics of agape love, he says, agape thinks no evil. That doesn't mean that agape is gullible. It gives people the benefit of the doubt, though. When we do what the Lord commends us, we have to understand he's got us. He's for us. He's not against us. We're on his side. So Paul here begins to redirect the Corinthians' thinking by adapting a passage from Isaiah 28, 11, verses 11 through 12, which introduces a citation from the law, really. Then Paul drops on us one of the, probably the most difficult pieces of scripture in the Bible. He leaves us scratching our head. He says in verse 21, what, and what Paul is trying to do, he's trying to jar the Corinthians thinking by reminding them once again of this passage in Isaiah. He quotes from the law here. He says, Isaiah 28, 11, 12, he says, for with stammering lips, I tell you guys, if you know anything about me, I used to watch Tucker Carlson all the time, and then you know what happened if you know anything about Fox News. I still watch every once in a while, but I could set my watch to Tucker Carlson. And he always had a word when he was really getting on people. He, he would always say, oh, he's or she's a buffoon. <laughs> well, that's what Isaiah is saying the people of Israel is right here. He says the people who are going to attack them for with stammering lips and another tongue, he will speak to this people to whom he said, this is the rest with which you may cause the weary to rest. And this is the refreshing yet they would not hear. Paul chooses this piece of scripture for two interrelated reasons. The occurrence of the language another tongues, because we're speaking about tongues, and the fact that in the context of Isaiah here, this speaking in tongues by foreigners did not affect Israel's belief. It did not help Israel to believe. Really, it both led to and was part of their judgment. So Paul brings out his own concerns, and he does four things with this Isaiah passage here. Verse 1, the first thing he does, he inverts the order of stammering lips, and he gives the Corinthians and says another tongue, and his interest is on the other tongue. Second, Paul changes, and he's looking at the Masoretic text here, where it says he will speak, Paul changes that to I will speak and concludes with the formula, says the Lord, hopefully that will get the Israelites' attention. He does that probably to increase the impact to the Corinthians. 
Thirdly, he changes the Septuagint. We know that Septuagint, the Hebrew was translated to the Greek text. So he changes the words in the Septuagint where it says coarse lips to the lips of another. The another now meaning the Corinthians believers who speaking in tongues would have injurious effects on unbelievers, would have injurious effects on unbelievers. And four, which is most significant, he skips a considerable section in Isaiah passage, picking up the end in verse 12, where he changes, yet they would not hear, referring to the intelligible words that the Lord was speaking and even so, referring now as the Corinthians are speaking in other tongues, they will not listen. God is saying they will not obey me. And so in this Isonic order here, the oracle, the prophet is anticipating the foreign invaders of Israel. But in the present context, the reason Paul says this, Paul is referring to the unbelievers whom he is about to mention in verse 23, who on hearing the Corinthians, they come into the assembly and they hear the Corinthians speaking in unknown tongues, it would be a fulfillment of this word of the Lord to the effect that tongues do not lead sinners to obedience. That's what it's all about. That's what Paul is trying to get them to understand. Do not speak in tongues if you do not have an interpreter. Because if someone comes in that is not saved, they're going to think you're mad. He picks up in verse 22. He says, therefore, the conclusion, and there's an application relative to what he just said. He says, therefore, tongues are for a sign, not to those who believe, there it is, but to unbelievers. He just put it in the realm of a sign. What he's saying is the word of the Lord from Isaiah indicates that tongues are not meant as a sign for believers. Paul is saying they're, they're not as you make them, Corinthians. The divine evidence of being, remember the word pneumaticus, where we started in the first and second chapters, they thought they were people of the spirit and they were boasting they were more spiritual than others. God in your assembly, but to the contrary, the, 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 the tongues are working. In these public gatherings, you should not be speaking in tongues unless, Paul will get to it, there's an interpreter. So he says in the latter part of verse 22, therefore tongues are a sign, not to those who believe, but to unbelievers. And then he changes gears, but prophesying is not for unbelievers, but for those who believe. Now, when he gets to verse 23 and 24, if you read it carefully, he seems to contradict everything he just said. And we'll notice that verse 23 says, therefore, if the whole church comes together in one place and all speak with tongues and there comes in those who are uninformed or unbelievers, will they not say that you are out of your mind? Of course they will. Now, he just said tongues were a sign for unbelievers. And it is a sign for unbelievers, but this is the catch. It's not a good sign. It's a bad sign for unbelievers. 
If they come in and you all are gathered together and you're all speaking in tongues, they're going to think you're crazy, the unbeliever. And then they're going to just forget about everything that you might say after that. Jesus is wanting to save the unbeliever. So tongues will only push unbelievers away unless there's an interpreter there. Verse 24, but if all prophesy and an unbeliever or an uninformed person comes in, he is convinced by all, he is convicted by all. Paul doesn't expect everyone to prophesy here. First, the unbeliever is convicted. That's always good. He's called to account, and he's called to account by the deep, penetrating spirit of the Lord because the Holy Spirit exposes sin and calling the unbeliever to account to the living God. You see, prophecy conveys a divine message from God. Paul says he is convinced by all and he is convicted by all. Remember when Jesus said of the Holy Spirit, John 16, 8, and when he has come, speaking of the Holy Spirit, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. I'm going to take you around the barn real quick. That's why in the book of Revelation, when the, the, the I think he calls it the comforter, but he's speaking of the Holy Spirit is taken away. There's no more conviction. How can they be convicted then when that happens in the book of Revelations? So it says in verse 25, and thus the secrets of his heart are revealed. The unbeliever's heart, they're exposed. The emphasis on the revelatory aspect of the prophetic utterance. You know, back in Genesis 3, after the fall, I'd suggest that one of sin's effects on humanity is thinking we can hide from the living God. It is folly for us to think of that we can do that. No wonder the Corinthians preferred tongues. They could gibber, jagber, everything else but they didn't want to do prophecy so much because it exposes. And that's why, unless there's an interpreter, there's a, it's the greater gift. It was much safer for them. Verse 25, the latter part, and so falling down on his face, he will worship God and report God is truly among you, bringing a person to repentance. The final result, that's what the Lord wants to do. He's come to seek and save those that are lost. How is it then, Paul says, brethren, because they're believers, how is it then, brethren, whenever you come together, each of you has a psalm, has a teaching, has a tongue, has a revelation, has an interpretation? Let all things be done for edification. This paragraph right here is very important. It gives us a good look at the first century church, what they were doing there, their ministries there. Paul comments tells us something of the way the early church worshiped. It seems to be really spontaneous, but orderly. They didn't have the completed Bible. As the Spirit swept through the church, 
He gifted each person to contribute something. What if I said, from now on, if you come here on Sunday morning, I want every one of you to contribute something. The first thing probably would come to your mind, it might come to mind maybe first, is, man, we'll be there all day. (laughs) Or it would be a little snippet of something real quick. But that's how it worked in the first century. But what's really striking to me, there was no leadership. There was no head person who was in charge. And anyone responsible really for seeing that these guidelines were generally adhered to. The community appears to be left to itself with the Holy Spirit. What could go wrong? Left to yourself, a bunch of believers with the Holy Spirit. But what was mandatory is that everything aimed at edification. That's all the Holy Spirit wanted, to proclaim Jesus, to build the church up. That's what it was all about. Nothing more, nothing less. We've, we've strayed far from that, and we need to be careful. That's what we do when we come to restore here. Verse 27, Paul says, If anyone speaks in a tongue, let there be two or at most three each in turn, and let one interpret. So three guidelines are given here. First, two, or at the most three, speak. And in between, as they spoke, there had to be an interpreter there. If there was an interpreter after that first person spoke a tongue, they had to cease. And this helps the tongue that does not, it does not dominate the, ins, the assembly. Once again, I, I was raised in a Baptist church. Pretty good Bible teaching church, but we had a lot of foolishness in it. And I was 13 years old and I could, that's foolishness. That's foolishness. Really, and I'm sure they're not watching online, so I'm not going to give the name, but I can tell you what happened. It was always on the first Sunday I don't know, I guess because we had communion on the first Sunday, and I remember my mom and dad driving to church, and I'm in the back, all three of us, four of us in the back seat, and they would always mention this lady's name. They said, man, I know she's going to fall out today. She always falls out on the first Sunday. I mean, it's like clockwork, falls out on the first Sunday. And you know what? I started paying attention on the first Sunday because I was there on all four or five Sundays. Sure enough, this lady with her big hat on, nice hat, Fall out. First, she'd get up and she'd start talking and speaking. But I just, I said, she's going to fall out because my daddy's and mama told me. And sure enough, she'd fall out. And probably, I believe she was a believer. But that shows the importance of being in your word. Because they just thought, hey, she was just, she was just a spiritual woman and probably was, but that, After I knew what time it was, she wasn't so spiritual to me. (laughs) And that's what Paul is taking care of here. He's talking about there's a sequence, not to the number of prophecies. You could have 15 people prophesy, but there had to be in order, not one speaking at a time or anything. Second, it was one at a time. The implication is that the Corinthians were doing otherwise. They had probably allowed it to dominate their gatherings in a way that reflected 
sort of pagan ecstasy, far more than the gospel of Christ allowed. Third, if no interpretation, no tongue. That, that was it. Verse 28, Paul says, but if there is no interpreter, let him keep silent in church and let him speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak and let the others judge. And he's not speaking of we had prophets. They were known as prophets. That's anybody in the congregation. If God put a word in their spirit wanting them to proclaim it, you, well, you had to step out in faith and you would proclaim the word. So he's not speaking about, oh, we've got prophet this and prophet that. That gift could be used at any time. But if anything is revealed to another who sits by, let the first keep silent. The requirement seems to be aimed at those who might tend to dominate the meeting. A, rev a revelation may come to someone while he's speaking, and he's supposed to keep silent and let that person get up and speak, the first speaker. Paul now offers sort of a justification for the preceding regulations in verse 31. He says, for you can all prophesy one by one that all may learn and all may be encouraged. This is for self-control and deference. You come here to restore, to be built up. It is difficult to imagine two people prophesying simultaneously shouldn't be. But since they apparently were doing so at the church of Corinth, this at least, Paul says, anticipates they're also doing so with prophecy as well, perhaps as keeping in the category of controlled speech in contrast, once again, to pagan varieties, because a lot of them was coming out of those cults, coming into the church, being believers, and yet they thought you behaved like this. And Paul, once again, is straightening this out. Divine revelation, that's what happens when someone prophecies. It's not given to just one a few. That's why I'm saying it wasn't three people who say, hey, these are prophets. No, they're given to the entire body of Christ. But we, when we have afterglow, it takes a measure of faith if the Lord has put something in your, in your heart to step out and speak it. It's just one simple kind of manifestation. Verse 26, I want you to remember this verse because Paul has says, let all things be done for edification. That's what it's about. And now in verse 32, and then Paul says, and the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. This is a crucial sentence. With these words, Paul lifts the Corinthian-inspired speech out of the category of ecstasy inspired by the other cults, different from, from the mania they would act or the pagan cults. There's no seizures. There's no loss of control. The speaker is neither frenzied nor a babbler. You can't find that anywhere in the scriptures. And the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophet. And what he means by that, you can be speaking you, and you can stop you have your right mind. You, if someone else begins to speak, you can stop and allow them to speak and start right back up because God is a God of order. 
So Paul justifies their speaking one at a time and being silent with regard to tongues when no interpretation is present. Once again, all of this is possible because the spirit of the prophets are subject to the control of the prophets. Verse 33, for God, and I love this, is not the author of confusion, but of peace. As in all the churches of the saints. Paul says, this is the way all the churches that I've planted behaves. They're in order. They're doing things correctly, Corinthians. And you guys need to fall in line with this. Paul adds, he really adds a theological justification here for guidelines. Everything has to do with the character of God. When I go to work, when I'm stuck in traffic, when I'm having a bad day, everything matters because I represent the Lord Jesus Christ. And God has established to be true of divine activity in the rest of his churches. It seems as if the Corinthians church had become unruly in the expressions of tongues. We have to realize that all these instructions, they're theological instructions. We need to make sure we're doing them in the church. It has to do with the character of God. Because once again, these deity cults whose worship was characterized by being frenzied or in disorder, the theological point is crucial. The character of the believer's deity is reflected in the character of our worship. How we worship shows who God is. And if we're running around, you go ever go to a church that's running the aisles and doing all kinds of things, it reflects back on God. That's what Paul is saying because God is a God of order. Now, I want you to look with me at verses 34 and 35. Read those carefully because I don't think they're authentic. And Paul couldn't have intended it to go with what he did not write. Furthermore, the very early textual evidence in the Western church indicates that this phrase was not considered to be part of those sentences. So listen, listen to me carefully. Those two verses is no big deal. In our statement of faith, and Brian, Pastor Brian read it on Wednesday, and I was so glad he did because I, I was going to read it and still am. This is what our statement of faith says. We believe that the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments are the word of God, fully inspired without error in their original manuscripts and are the infallible rule of faith and practice. That's what we believe. The Bible is the foundation upon which the church operates and is the basis for which the church is governed. We believe that the Bible supersedes any earthly law that is contrary to the Holy Scriptures. So the two rhetorical questions that are followed in verse 36, both of which begins with or, verse 33, 
make best sense, and that's what we're talking about here, when understood as referring directly to this statement. That is verse 33b when he says, as in all the churches of the saints. That should be there. Or to be intended to be orderly as we have just described. Now look at verse 36, the beginning of it. Or did the word of God come originally from you? This seems to be um, the proper understanding of the rhetoric to come, even if the intruding sentences were authentic in verse 34 and 35, which again, I believe is unlikely. To take this phrase with the intruding text creates even a clumsier sentence, and I'm going to read it for you. Verse 33, the latter part, it says, For God is not the author of confusion, but of peace, as in all the... uh, as in all the churches of the saints. Then we're going to jump right into these verses that I don't think should be here. Women keep silent in the churches. See, the two questions with which he begins are, are, are a direct confrontation with the Corinthians over their attitude towards Paul on some issue. I told you from the beginning of the study of 1 Corinthians, the Corinthian has a beef with Paul. They don't think Paul is up to standard with the other apostles. They think Paul is lesser of the apostles. And now Paul is going to straighten them out on everything here. So Paul, as he writes this, he's not trying to stir up anything, but he has to teach the truth of the word the word of God, the gospel of Christ. And then if you, if you ever read through his 13 epistles, Paul is known for his sarcasm. Very brilliant man, but he, he's sarcastic in all of his letters. And he says in verse 33, that's why he says it, or did the word of God come originally from you? You Corinthians, you know so much. You're wise. You, you, you are pneumaticus. You, you are full of the Spirit. You speak in the Spirit all the time. You're, you're, you just walk around 24-7 in the Spirit because that's what they thought. That's why he says, or did the Word of God come originally from you guys? Or was it you only that it reached? These other churches that are in order and doing things correctly, you're not, but you're right and they're wrong. That's basically what he's saying. This seems to be the proper understanding of the rhetoric to come. Even if the intruding sentences were authentic, verse 34 and verse 35, which seems altogether unlikely. To take this phrase with the intruding text creates even a clumsier sentence. Let me read it for you. Latter part of verse 33. As in all the churches of the saints, then he jumps to, let your women keep silent in the churches for they are not permitted to speak but they are to be submissive as the law also says. And if they want to learn something, let them ask their own husbands at home, for it is shameful for women to speak in church. Now they have commentary on that. You can make a text say anything if you beat it long enough. You, You can make it say it. But I don't think it's supposed to be there. And it's full of sarcasm. Paul says, did the message about Christ originate with you? 
And what he's saying is, as you, the Corinthians, are you the foundation head from which all Christian truth springs, that you can act so in this matter, so that you can carry on in your own individualistic way as if there was no other believers in the world. This is biting sarcasm Paul gives them, but it's needed. And he says, who do you think you are anyway? Is the implication here. Has God given you special word, a special word that allows you to both reject my teachings? Because that's what Paul is doing. He's the one that's the apostles. On the one hand, and be so out of touch with the other churches of believers on the other. Now, I said I wasn't going to do this, but I'm going to do it anyway. I digress. He says, but to what does this rhetoric refer? Why is Paul saying this? Certainly not, they're certainly not intruding words about women keeping silent, which are unlikely to be authentic. That's what I said. Paul is likely concluding the present argument that he was stating having to do with their and his disagreements over the nature of being pneumaticos. That's what the first the, uh, Corinthians thought. They were in the spirit. That's why when you get to the next chapter, the 15th chapter, they think they've already arrived. They think they're already spirit-filled completely, and the body doesn't matter, so they can live and they can do anything they want to do. That's what the 15th chapter is all about, people of the spirit. This is now the third time in this letter where Paul attacks their own position with this formula. He says in verse 37, if anyone thinks, this is his third time saying that, he says, if anyone thinks himself to be a prophet or spiritual, let him acknowledge that the things which I write to you are the commandments of the Lord. Paul pushes all the chips on the table and says, if you're so spiritual and you think what I'm saying is not the word of the Lord, well, let the Lord handle it. And that's what he's going to say. Because he's zeroing in on the Corinthians' own perspective as to what it means to be people of the Spirit. They think themselves to be wise and having knowledge because they think that they are pneumaticus. They are already spirit-led. They are already, the body does not matter anymore. They're just doing everything by the spirit. So the body, it doesn't count what they do in the physical body. And so with the same authority of the same Lord they're talking about, whom he received this command from, he pronounces sentences on those who do not recognize the spirit of God. He says in verse 38, but if anyone is ignorant, let him be ignorant. If you're not going to believe what the word of God I have written says, go on and be ignorant. And what he's saying is a person of the spirit, if you're really of the spirit, should recognize what he's saying is from the Lord. That blesses me because when I first became a, a believer, 20-something, 30 years ago, I would go into churches, 
trying to find a Bible teaching church. I'd go to churches and they would say things and it wasn't right. And I would give it time. And, and I said, this, this church is not, it's not spirit-led. It's not of the Lord. Because you're going to stick with the guidelines. You're not going to give your opinion when you stand up here. You're going to give, thus saith the Lord. There's a charge to keep. So really, it's a prophetic sentence of judgment on those who fail to heed this letter. They will themselves be ignored by God. Verse 39, Paul says, therefore, brethren, desire earnestly to prophesy and do not forbid to speak with tongues. Let, let all things be done decently and in order. The worship team can come up. Pastor Jonathan, I almost started <laughs> 15, but I'm going to wait till Sunday. I caught you out by surprise. I stopped pretty early today, didn't I? Blame it on Pastor Jonathan. Uh, you know, I'm blown away. at the young people we have and they do so much at Restore. I take the older people for granted. I, they, they should do well. That's why I'm not saying much about you guys. But I'm blown away by the younger generation whether it's the worship team, whether they serve the youth group, all the children we have dedicated, they're not wanting really to just be dedicated. They know we should because that's what the Lord has called for. But you see these people living it out. You see Tara. You see Hank and Tanya, Zach. You see them living it out. They want to be good parents. They want not only good parents, they want to be godly parents. Savannah and Tyler, just, just walking with the Lord. And I, I kid with, with Jonathan and Lydia all the time. I said, hey, I might not see it, but we're going to be a big, huge church one of these days because all these babies we're having. <laughs> so let it be so. But it's a, it's a blessing. Like I prayed for Hank and Tanya, there's a wealth of knowledge here at Restore. People who have lived that age and everything, and they want to pour into you guys. And so you'd be blessed to just sit around and talk to them. What, what, what do you think about this, raising a child this way? What do you think about this? What, what school should I send the child to if I can? What, all those things are important. And God will reward you for being persistent in that matter. So we don't take it lightly. We are blessed to have you here. Let's pray. Father, you are an awesome God. God Almighty El Shaddai. That's who you are. You're not a weak God. You're an omnipotent God who can speak a word in man and lay down and die, and you can speak a word and he'll rise up again. You're all powerful. You're all knowing you ever existed. You spoke this world 
into existence. That's the God we serve. That's why David says, whom shall I fear? If God be for me, who can be against me? Once again, we should walk in confidence, the children of God, but we don't walk boasted, boasting, but we walk in confidence because we know who we serve. Lord, would you bless us, not because we are worthy of your blessings, but because we're your children, we have accepted Jesus Christ as our personal Lord and Savior. And we believe you are who you said you are. And we believe that you're coming back one day to rule and reign. We believe you're going to take us to a place that there's no more sorrow, no more pain, no more sickness. Lord, pour your Holy Spirit upon us. Do a work in us. We rely on you, Father God. And we thank you for what you're going to do. And we ask this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Let's stand and close with a song, please.